The ocean covers 70% of the earth. It also provides food, helps regulate our climate, and produces over 50% of the world's oxygen. But like so much of the natural world, the ocean is facing dramatic changes because of our human action. Take for example, CO2. Some of the CO2 that we release into the atmosphere gets absorbed by the ocean. That CO2 makes the ocean more acidic, making it harder for coral and oysters to build their shells. But scientists say that if we act now, we can still reduce the impact that we have on our oceans. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, Connecticut Public's talk shows are diving deep into all things nautical, and we're calling it Naughty Week. That's naughty spelled N-A-U-T-I. We now listen back to a panel discussion that I hosted for the Nature Conservancy in Connecticut's annual Nature Talk series. The discussion was called Oceans, Our Global Watchdog. It was recorded in front of a live audience at Grace Farms in New Canaan. I was joined by Dr. Sylvia Earle, explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society and the first female chief scientist at NOAA and Time Magazine's first hero for the planet. Dr. Camille Gaines is board chair of Black and Marine Science and assistant teaching professor of biology at Penn State Brandywine. Dr. Lizzie McLeod is Global Reef Systems Lead for the Nature Conservancy, and Dr. Tierra Moore is Founder and CEO of Black and Marine Science and the Black and Marine Science Program Lead for the Nature Conservancy. I asked our panelists what it means when we say oceans are our climate watchdog. I started with Dr. Sylvia Earle. Well, I could not have answered that question when I was a kid (laughs) because... People just didn't make the connection that we now do Mm. between the ocean, climate, weather, all of life. We're here because the ocean is here. Mm -hmm. And now we know what even learned scientists did not appreciate the way we do now, that if there's no ocean, there's no climate. It's the ocean that shapes planetary chemistry, planetary temperature, home for most of life on Earth. (laughs) No ocean, no us. But with respect to climate in particular, one thing that is coming into sharper focus the more we look at the issues, this is not just a physical connection between the atmosphere and the ocean. It's a living connection. Earth is alive, the ocean is alive. We're alive, right? (laughs) Because the ocean is alive. When you think, well, how can that be? Just understand that the air we breathe, you said someone did, that more than half of the oxygen constantly being generated comes from little green guys out there in the ocean. Carbon dioxide is absorbed, not just by trees and grass and ferns, but by life in the ocean kelp forests, seagrass meadows, mangroves, and most of all, phytoplankton. It's alive. Camille, what about you? What does it mean to you when you hear this phrase that oceans are our climate watchdog? I mean, like Dr. Earl said, I mean, our globe is primarily ocean, right? And I think we all have a connection with the oceans. You know, I was 
very fortunate early in life, I realized I just physically enjoyed being in water. Like I physically liked how it made me feel. You know, and I'm fortunate, I say, because I had the opportunities to explore that. And I think a lot of people don't have that, and that's unfortunate. And when we think about the problems that are facing our oceans, because they're serious, you know, they're very serious, giving people those firsthand opportunities to interact with the ocean is important. So then they can realize and see how the climate how is linked to our oceans, right? And they can understand and see ways that they can get involved in it. Um, I think that that's very important and understanding, right? Even though, like you said, right, I live in Philadelphia and I study coral reefs. You know, people might think, oh, that's <laughs> arms distance away. Like, what does Philadelphia have to do with coral reefs? But even I, right, I'm linked, not just from a research aspect, not just as a scientist, but from what I eat, right? You know, the resources that are available to me are relied on because there are healthy coral reefs out there. Thank you. Lizzie, for you, what what does this phrase mean to you, that oceans are our climate watchdog? I think for me, um, watchdogs do two things. Um, they protect us and they alert us to danger. Um, I think Sylvia said so beautifully how our oceans protect us. They are truly the lungs of our planet. Um, they have buffered the impacts of ocean warming and our climate warming in general in the atmosphere for many, many decades. We would have much greater ocean warming if it hadn't, the heat hadn't been absorbed by our oceans. So they, they are helping buffer the impacts of climate change. But I think they're also warning us um, that the impacts of climate change are happening now and they are severe. Um, I was recently on a diving trip in Indonesia and seeing corals bleaching where they release the algae that gives them their color um, Essentially, the heat that's in the ocean is causing them to release the algae and they starve. So you, everywhere you look around you, you see these warnings um, that the ocean is sick. Um, and for me, that, that really reminds us how vitally important it is that if we are going to protect our oceans and help restore the health of our oceans, climate action has to be absolutely front and center in addition to protecting our communities as well. Tiara, you're up next. What does it mean for you that oceans are a climate watchdog? Watchdog. All right. Let's do this. So um, I would say for me, that really means like, what's happening in the climate and the atmosphere is also happening in the ocean. It's really this connection. So there's, like you said, it's getting hot in the atmosphere. It's also getting hot in the ocean. We're seeing releases of toxic gases like carbon dioxide. We also see that absorbed in the ocean. There's a chemical reaction that leads to acidification. But I think most importantly for me, this watchdog aspect allows us to see where these climate change impacts are the most prevalent. Mm -hmm. And I think it really allows us to put a super sharp laser, laser focus on a lot of environmental injustices that occur. So you can see these things, these climate change impacts that are occurring, but for me and my research, you have to look like, where are they occurring? Who are these impacts happening to? Are they aware? Are they educated? And so for me, you can see ultimately what communities are impacted by the climate change and who's impacted the most. And you can really you know, move your efforts to really try to educate these communities. So I would say it's really helpful because you can see again what's happening in the ocean, but also who, who it's going to impact. Because it's, it's, we talk about climate change now, I think some people say it's, it's happening, but some people it's already happened too. Mm -hmm. Their homes have already been flooded due to sea level rise. Mm -hmm. They've already been displaced and they're just not as known, you know, we're not talking about those folks. Those aren't the people that are highlighted. So I think we have to talk about that as well. Some people, climate change is their, their life, it's been their history. 
Tiara, I want to continue that point because what you just laid out for us is that these things don't happen in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. They are intersecting, they are overlapping, they also are not new, even if the public conversation may be newer. So when you think about this intersection between ocean protection and climate change, what comes to mind for you in your work about the intersections of those missions? <laughs> the first thing I started um, researching was nutrient pollution in the Chesapeake Bay. And this was leading to these algal blooms, these, these big mats on the ocean. Like, they're like, oh, it's sucking up all the oxygen and it's hurting hypoxic and it's killing all these fish. But then I noticed where I was doing this research, it's like, well, this doesn't really bother, <laughs> bother y'all. But what about this community that now doesn't have any place to fish? And now they don't have food and they don't have resources, you know? And so that's a huge, that's, that's a big impact that we now need to think about. Now, it's not saying it's not important for everybody who wants dead fish on their beautiful beaches, but when you have to eat those fish and you have nothing else, that's major. And so we really need to focus on those, those types of impacts that we're seeing with these climate change related, um, basically disasters that are occurring. Lizzie, let's go back to something that you mentioned in your comments that these impacts are happening now and that they are severe. And often when people think about these interactions and these intersections, we immediately think about sea level rise. Mm -hmm. And we hear homeowners talking about that concern. What can we do collectively to help people better understand these connections? That yes, sea level rise is a part of it, but it's one amongst many when it comes to the severity of the consequences that are happening. How can we help people see the connections? I think for one, I think sea level rise is a, is a hook in a way because I think a lot of people in the eastern seaboard of the US and Connecticut and up and down the coasts or in the Gulf see it to, in their backyards or they certainly have neighbors and they've experienced it themselves. And it's a way to directly feel the impacts of climate change. I think the challenge and opportunity through that hook though is to, to, to Tierra's point, People are losing their homes, their gardens from saltwater intrusion. Um, entire coastlines are washing away in a lot of tropical islands. And I think helping to understand it's just the beginning. I mean, this is really, these impacts are happening globally and they're happening much more severely in other parts of the world. And so I think using the parts of climate change that people are experiencing today as a hook to tell the story and as a hook to get people involved and engaged and realizing it's much bigger than just waves coming on shore. It's how our weather patterns are changing, how we have you know, massive significant droughts and wildfires absolutely driven by climate change. Some places getting you know, tremendous rain that they didn't used to get, leading to massive flooding that never used to happen before. Um, places that don't have enough water um, that have traditionally had plenty of water to support their communities. And so I think it's just, when you start bringing it into things that affect people's ability to feed their families, um, care for their communities, I think that is what we need to be doing to really encourage everyone to be playing a much more active role in climate action so that it's not just for a small group, but it's really something that all of us, it's on all of us to help take a lead in responding to. Camille, talk to us more about what's happening in the ocean and how that affects this intersection of thinking about ocean protection and climate change. And Lizzie and Tierra mentioned some of those things. What are other examples that we need to be aware of of what's happening in the ocean? I think regardless of the system you're talking about in the ocean and even on land, it's the rate at which we're seeing these changes happen and they're going into negative spaces, right? So as somebody who studies coral reefs, 
going to a reef, right, and seeing a coral that has taken hundreds of years to grow, right, bleaching in a matter of months, sometimes weeks, <laughs> you know, that, that's just one example of the rapid change, right? And so knowing that to rebuild that is going to take time. And so understanding those mechanisms, but also being able to preserve them. I am excited now that as scientists, we're getting more storytelling. We're introducing our research and talking about it in so many different ways to encourage people to have a conversation, right? Because if I'm just showing you graphs and numbers, people's eyes, you know, I, I teach. <laughs> students might be like, oh, geez, here goes Dr. Gaines, you know, with these graphs, which they do have importance, right? But being able to understand and talk about these things in a variety of ways is integral when we're talking about how we can help protect, you know, and I think we all have a lane. I think of it like a highway. You know, my lane is my lane. You got your lane. But we're all traveling in the same direction. And so that's how I try and think about, you know, ocean conservation, what we all can do, right? Because we don't all have to be doing the same exact things to have a strong impact on these regions. Sylvia, let's bring this into focus because we've talked about changes in temperature. We've talked about changes in habitat. We've talked about changes in the impact and the rate of that impact. From your vantage point, what would you say we could be doing to help people understand the connections, but to really address some of these dramatic mm -hmm. consequences that I imagine over the span of your career have really accelerated in terms of things that you were thinking about and predicting some time ago? So... You're right, I've been a witness mm -hmm. to perhaps the greatest time in all of human history. First of all, learning about who we are, where we've come from, and where we might be going. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, to witness the greatest time of loss. David Attenborough speaks of this, mm -hmm. Jane Goodall speaks of it. I speak of it because I've been privileged to have the opportunity to explore in places that most people haven't had the chance to do. I mean, astronauts who are privileged to go high in the sky, they come back and they want to share the view. They want to tell you about this blue miracle that is the only place habitable for the likes of us in all of this beautiful but dreadfully hostile universe beyond. And nowhere else is there our history, our connection to everything that has preceded our existence. And in perspective, it's taken about four and a half billion years to shape Earth's rocks and water through the action of life the ocean has defined Earth as a habitable planet. It did and it still does. If it's in trouble, we're in trouble. It is in trouble and therefore so are we. We've gotten away with a lot of destruction on the land because until, until the 20th century and especially since then increasing, since the middle of the 20th century, the technology that enables us to ship 90% of our goods by sea. I mean, 90% of everything goes in these big ships that churn out carbon dioxide, make a lot of noise, 
disturb the systems, but they're the lifeblood of our economy. So it's a part of what makes our society function. We have put so much junk into the ocean I mean, at, a, at a level that is unprecedented and new materials that didn't exist when I was a child. And they've served us so well when you think of how much our lives are enriched by the synthetic materials that we manufacture. <clears throat> but the downside, now we can see the cost. About half, almost half, of all of the land now has been converted for agriculture to feed us. That's, it's astonishing. We, imagine if we didn't know this. But we can. We can see it from high in the sky. In the ocean, only about 3% has been proactively protected. There's a goal now widely embraced to, to protect at least 30% of the land, to rewild places that have been converted for human purposes. In the ocean, consider that 97% is open for human exploitation. Only a tiny fraction now is highly or fully protected, including places like what Nature Conservancy has done with Palmyra Island in the Pacific Ocean. A little tiny speck with a magnified impact because it's a story. It can show the benefits of protecting nature and other places. I mean, why do I love Nature Conservancy? Because of this ethic of respecting and caring for the wild. Think, four and a half billion years to make a habitable planet, it took about, it has taken about four and a half centuries since the 1500s when human population was at half a billion. We're now at eight billion humans. And we have expectations that are born of our history, giving nature an accounting base of zero. When you think, what are trees worth? Well, we've treated trees as if they're in the way of things we want to do. We need to plant tobacco and corn and cows and whatever it is, cities. And I mean, I think we're the luckiest humans ever to arrive, especially the kids. We've got the last best chance we'll ever have because we still have some sharks. About 10% 10, 10 are still there from where in the 1980s the shark populations were much more widespread and healthy, but we're so good at catching and killing and marketing them. Tuna, same, same projection. Bluefin tuna, when I was chief scientist at NOAA, their numbers had shrunk in the Atlantic to 10%. This is 1990. 10% of what they've been in 1970. 20 years to take this abundance and reduce it down to a fraction. Because we're really good at killing things, we, including one another. <laughs> but our war on nature has, has never been greater than in the 20th century and now into the 21st. And I love what one of Nature Conservancy's former leaders, John Sawhill, said about the human civilization, our society will be judged not as much by what we create as but what we fail mm -hmm. to destroy. Protecting 
this fabric of life that preceded us and makes our existence possible should be our highest priority if we want to survive. That was Dr. Sylvia Earle, Explorer in Residence at the National Geographic Society and the first woman chief scientist at NOAA. After the break, we'll hear more from this panel discussion exploring how oceans are our global watchdog. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're looking at the ocean's warning signs with a group of renowned scientists. They were part of a panel that I hosted for the Nature Conservancy in Connecticut back in March. This episode is part of Connecticut Public's look at all things nautical, or what we're calling Naughty Week for short. We're joined now by Dr. Sylvia Earle, Explorer in Residence at the National Geographic Society. Dr. Camille Gaines is Assistant Teaching Professor of Biology at Penn State Brandywine. Dr. Lizzie McLeod is Global Reef Systems Lead at the Nature Conservancy, and Dr. Tierra Moore is founder and CEO of Black and Marine Science. Ask Lizzie if she sees any conflicts between climate and biodiversity efforts. I think for my work, um, I, I don't see as many conflicts because I, feel, I think the conflict is more on, we have a lot of challenges and we can't tackle them all at the same time. Um, and you've got to pick where you think you can have the greatest impacts. Um, so for me, the conflict is, is prioritization, but it's not an either or. So I think we've heard very eloqu eloquently from others on the panel about we, we have to be addressing the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis together. Um, I think that there, there are conflicts in places when we start prioritizing um, countries and communities um, where we're going to put our support or try to elevate local solutions in. Um, I think in my career, I've seen um, a history of uh, developed countries encouraging developing countries to protect their either you know coral reefs or forests to protect nature when a lot of the developed countries um, have already destroyed many of their areas. And so it's taking a you know, tremendous amount of wealth in richer countries and calling on the, the more developing countries to actually really 
carry the burden of conservation and protection and climate action. I think um, earlier in my career, um, I spent a lot of time working in the Pacific, in Micronesia. And on one of the trips, I was out there, and I was asked to go out and speak about climate impacts. And I get to this island in Papua New Guinea, and I land, and this young girl, she was about 12, jumps on this van that's taking us to the community where we're gonna be um, meeting them and talking about climate change. And she starts pointing out along the coast, oh, that's my auntie's garden. That's where the salt water came in and killed the plants. Um, that's my uncle's house. You can see all the coconut trees are washed away. Um, and house by house by house, I was seeing the impacts of climate change. And I was there as this you know, person from the States to come and talk about what's happening with climate change. And it was one of those moments where I felt like, what am I doing here? You know, how, how am I supposed to come here and talk about climate change when this community is living it? Um, and it was a really humbling and painful experience. Um, but what I took away from that was, how do we take the knowledge, take those experiences, and turn towards our families, our communities, our churches, our schools, and how do we bring that knowledge to action locally? I think that is so vitally important because the solutions are going to happen here. They're gonna happen in your communities, your schools, your partnerships, and I think um, that's really where people need to be focused. I think we need to sort of encourage people from finding solutions outside um, and really in driving those more to look at themselves. Tiara, what I've heard is this connection between what we know is happening globally and how we work and act and focus locally. And so much of your work is really about that, about pri prioritizing the voices and experiences of local folks who often get overlooked at best and undermined mm -hmm. at worst. When you think about your approach to this work, you think about the communities that are most affected and often least heard in this work. What do you see as the key priority or a couple of key priorities that we should be thinking about in this space? Oh man, so I would say for me, it's, it's increasing ocean literacy. I think that has been the most important um, and vital method to just show people, first of all, what is the ocean? You know, what is conservation? Um, I'll quote something actually I heard you say, uh, Sylvia, we were, I was at a conference and I think you said, it's curious that we use, I think the ocean as our refrigerator as well as our trash can. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's so, that's, that was like, like stuck with, like, and I was like, wow, that just really shows just that people just generally don't have that education, like that understanding of like, what is really going on in the ocean? What is it? How is it? impact us, what, what's going on. So I would just say that would be the focus there, just the education. Um, but also I would say how the lack of education and understanding can be almost weaponized against folks and they don't even know it. Just to just roll with me on this story, we go on a storytelling journey, you imagine you're born into this world, into a system that maybe not give you the best chances, but you get your job, right? You go to work, you pay your taxes, you find yourself needing some housing assistance. You fill out the government paperwork because they say they want to help you. And then you go and live into this apartment that is reduced rent and you're happy, like, wow, the government helped me. And you find that you're living in a flood zone and they knew that it was a flood zone. They knew that your house would be impacted by sea level rise and climate change. They knew that but you were just happy for that assistance and you didn't know anything about sea level rise. You didn't even know that was a thing. Those are the things that are actively happening. People putting places in danger when they know, they know. 
And so when you don't have folks who are in the room who look like me who are saying, hey, 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 hold up, that's my grandma's house. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go put the airport there because you have to ask yourself when you go to these areas, like if you think about Washington, why is the airport closer to Tacoma than Seattle? <laughs> why? You know, you really have to start asking yourself, why are these, these things that we have, these environmental injustices, things that we know are causing danger put in different areas, in different communities. And so when you don't have folks calling that out and saying something and say, hey, hold on, we need to talk about this. And so I say it's that education we need to increase, but then we also have to have that representation. For so long, I would introduce myself as a marine scientist and people would look at me like, oh, you can swim? <laughs> like, oh. Ew, like what? But I mean, that is the realization as a black woman in this space where it seems like, oh, <laughs> I can't even swim. How am I ever to be respected as a marine scientist, someone who has something to say, someone who is going to make an impact? And so for this work, we really have to focus on education so we know what we're talking about, but also showing this next generation of beautiful folks I'm looking at that you can come in and be your authentic self and you can show up and be you and still belong in this room and call this stuff out because they, it just doesn't happen. And like, oh, wow, wait, we did do that. <sighs> I'm glad you said something. You know, it, and that can be the conversation. It can be a little hard <laughs> at first. Like, we didn't know we were doing that. But when you start having these conversations and open up who we're talking to, then we can really see the climate change mitigation and ocean protection that we actually need. It's like, why are we keeping people out of marine science? Marine science is lit. <laughs> why are we keeping people out of this space actively when we know the ocean is on fire? We know all these stats that we've been spreading out, all these things are going on. So we should be welcoming people into this space with open arms. Like, yo, you want to be a marine scientist? Come on, come on. Not putting these barriers up. So I would say that's why I work at Black Marine Science is to really just show that you can be here, but this going into those communities that are the most impacted and just providing that educational resources. Camille, sometimes exploring the why can help shape the what, mm -hmm. right? So that when we take the step back to be reflective, mm -hmm. to ask ourselves why this is happening, why we're committed to it, that can help us define what we do mm -hmm. and in what order of priority. Mm -hmm. Because it can be overwhelming when we yeah. think about the scope and the magnitude of what's happening. Understanding that connection between the why and the what, what would you say would be an urgent priority in this area? And I'm thinking in particular, mm -hmm. The fact that we are here as a part of the Nature Conservancy and all of the work that that organization has been doing to protect plant and animal life and fight climate change, mm -hmm. which for some people seems enormous, mm -hmm. but so important. What would you see as priority? I think what a lot of the panelists have kind of already said, I'm just going to sum it up for this one in the sense that first and foremost, the exclusion, right? You know. I'm never gonna be an expert of the ocean. You know how vast the ocean is? You know, I'm gonna be an old lady and they're still gonna be telling me new things about the ocean. And I think that that's cool. I think that that's super cool, right? But making sure that people have access to ask these questions, to get their, you know, why, you know? Because if you don't know your why, then you don't understand what you can do, like you said. So going back to what Dr. Moore said about ocean literacy, it's a huge, huge aspect, and I, unfortunately, I think that a lot of times, as a scientist, we don't take it as wholesomely as we should, right? There's so many times I've been in talks, 
and I have questions of my colleagues. Oh, this is interesting. And sometimes I get the mentality, if you don't understand that, that's a you problem. And it's like, wow, this person has been studying this for decades, you know? And like, I hold myself to this standard. If I can't explain what I do to, every, to anyone, then I need to revisit that. And so I see myself in that ocean literacy, and that's, that's kind of my what, you know? I've seen my why, and this is my what, right? Making sure that I can be able to explain this, to engage it with anyone, right? If they have questions, because then that can help them to see, oh, okay, why, why should I care about what Camille is talking about? And that can help them to form their what. You know, what can you do? But I think it starts with that ocean literacy, you know? And you can't necessarily go into these and say, okay, this is what someone needs to do. This is what this community needs to do. Because that's one-sided. You know, I could tell somebody, oh, you need to stop doing X, Y, Z. And that might not fit into their lifestyle at all. <laughs> So that's why you have to start with the why. Start with that educational aspect. Start with a conversation, you know, on what's happening, what I've seen, you know, what they might have seen. You know, there are times that I've worked in Morea, which is in the French Polynesia, French Polynesian Islands in the South Pacific, and there are community members there who know so much more than I do about this system, right? But being able to understand that and to swap information, that helps me to be a stronger researcher. That was Dr. Camille Gaines, board chair of Black and Marine Science and assistant teaching professor of biology at Penn State Brandywine. She spoke as part of a panel discussion that I hosted with the Nature Conservancy in Connecticut. Coming up, the panel talks about how we get people outside of the scientific community more involved in protecting the ocean. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're listening back to a conversation that I moderated about the health of our oceans. It's part of a series of nautical conversations on Connecticut Public's local talk shows. We're calling it Naughty Week. Today, we look at what the ocean tells us about how we're treating the planet. Our guests are Dr. Sylvia Earle, explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society. Dr. Camille Gaines is assistant teaching professor of biology at Penn State Brandywine. Dr. Lizzie McLeod is global reef systems lead at the Nature Conservancy. And Dr. Tierra Moore is founder and CEO of Black and Marine Science and the Black and Marine Science program lead at the Nature Conservancy. I wanted to return to a comment that Sylvia made 
that we treat the ocean as our refrigerator and our trash can. I asked her how we balance the many uses of the ocean. The ocean is more than our refrigerator and our garbage can, if you will. The most important thing that we take from the ocean is our existence. Mm -hmm. We live because the ocean lives. Not just because it's a lot of water out there and rocks. It's because it's a living ocean. No one person can solve these big issues, but everyone can do something. Mm -hmm. And I suggest that whoever you are, look in the mirror. Nobody can tell you better than you can tell yourself. What have you got? What are you good at? Are you good with music, with art, with words? Are you good with animals? Are you good with kids? <laughs> Do you have a way with something? What makes you you? Use that power. Combine it with a superpower of knowing what our predecessors could not know. Kids of today know. Ten-year-olds have witnessed what Earth looks like from space. They know about giant squids. Mm -hmm. They know about whales for more than just, oh, that's what whale they go out and make money by killing whales. No, there's a new ethic that is coming into focus. It's the ethic of caring because if we don't, we aren't going to be around. We can see the trajectory. We've got the evidence. It's evidenced by the loss of nature. Now, you can say, and I've heard it so often, that three billion of us, eight billion, consume wild fish. Well, I'm sure that's true, it's probably even more than that. But of that number, you should ask the question, how many need to consume ocean wildlife for their sustenance? There are some, of course, coastal communities, island countries, where it really is a matter of this is what we have to have in order to, to survive. But that's not true ordering tuna in Chicago or <laughs> halibut far from the ocean. We, we've lost that connection to nature, which is one of the reasons why listening to the voices of people who have lived in a place, made peace with nature, if you will, over a very long time, they know what a tree is worth. They know how long it takes. If you cut one down, it doesn't just pop up magically and re get replaced in a lifetime, or sometimes many lifetimes, as humans measure life. So respecting that ancient wisdom, but also realizing we're in the 21st century and that we've got issues that did not confront our predecessors a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, even a hundred years ago, nature was much more intact. I mean, I as a witness of what's happened in the ocean, I have witnessed a decline of coral reefs by about half. The good news is about half are still in pretty good shape. Kelp forests, same thing, they're in real trouble. And not just the kelp, but all the organisms that make a kelp forest a kelp forest. What does it take to make a living planet? Our life support system is on the line. 
There is no excuse anymore for using factory ships to take wildlife from the ocean by the ton. This is not feeding starving people. This is feeding a subsidized, heavily subsidized industry. And it's harming all of the ocean, including the coral reefs, the kelp forests, affects the climate. When you take millions of tons of wild animals, squid, krill from Antarctica, tunas, swordfish, you, you know, all the stuff that we extract, where does that carbon go? Up into the atmosphere, some of it goes into us, but ultimately it's not descending to be sequestered in the deep sea. And, and we, I think as never before, have an obligation to everyone around right now, as well as those who are coming along, those who are not at the table because they aren't born yet, or those who live out in the ocean who are not at the table because they can't get to the table. Well, sometimes they're on the table <laughs> being <laughs> eaten. <laughs> but, you know, they're voices. We need to be their voice. We need to make the decisions individually and together that can turn our trajectory right now reaching tipping points that do not bode well for us. We can change that. There are more whales today than there were when I was a kid because we stopped killing them. <laughs> we kill them with plastic, we kill them by taking their food, but generally speaking, we've, we're not killing them deliberately anymore. And the same is true you know, with turtles, with more sea turtles than when I was a kid. They're recovering. You know, we would have lost more birds than already have been lost if we hadn't proactively tried to give them a break and to put a value on them. What's a wild bird worth? We're beginning to understand that bird watching is a multi-billion dollar business, that bird ecology, maintaining the health of systems, there's a value to that. We haven't quite translated that to the ocean. Fish are still free the way we account for them. And maybe we can change that by understanding there is no free lunch. <laughs> we, we're all in this together. And what we take out of nature, there's a cost to that. And I think we're right at the best place. I think this is a sweet spot in time. That for the first time, we know enough to know what to do. We've got the best chance we'll ever have. It's going to get harder from now on. So why not put a big smile on your face and say, yes, I mean, come on. Let's do what we can while we still have the best chance we'll ever have. What is it, the next 10 years, the next, most important in the next 10,000 years? 2030, the objective that many countries are buying into to protect nature as never before? I mean, I think we get it. We just have to do it. I want to ask Camille, Lizzie, and Tierra, how do we get more people involved in this work? I'm looking at these amazing young people, listening to Sylvia talk about how young people get this in a way that maybe older people didn't get because we weren't aware or that understanding and that connection. How do we get people who don't live in coastal communities and think, oh, that doesn't really affect me? Or Sylvia now has me rethinking all of my dinner choices for this weekend, <laughs> so it's working. Thank you so much to doing that. But just quickly, to the three of you, how do we get more people involved in this work? 
I think it has to go back to, again, the ocean literacy and interacting with folks. You know, I, a lot of my PhD research, I was at a research station, and one of the sad things was I didn't think there was as much overlap between the folks who live in that local community and the researchers at the station, right? So a lot of it is going outside of your comfort zones, right? And in particular, two communities, like Dr. Moore said, right, that are of color, that are black peoples, not just African-Americans, right, but simply those of us who are melanated. Because across the globe, we see the persecution in all of these aspects, and environmental justice is an aspect of that as well. And so I encourage all of us, especially those of us who have the expertise, we can't just ignore those conversations. That the time for that has come and, come and gone. And it, even, you know, we see that didn't get us too many places. Because again, when I think about all the questions, there's so many questions. The ocean is a huge place, you know what I mean? So we need as many people as we can at the table br bringing in their contributions, their talents. And there are a variety of them, right? Not everybody has to have a PhD at the table. Not every one of us needs to be trained as a scientist or be a professor at a university, right? That does not mean, though, that you can't be a part of the conversation, that you can't be a part of this mission of saving our oceans. Because like you said, at the end of the day, we're all going to be affected. Some of us, unfortunately, more than others. Lizzie, how do we expand the table so that we're not just preaching to the choir, but also seeking out what may seem like unlikely allies, but do have this shared interest. How do we bring people in? I think one is um, have humility. I think a lot of people um, don't care what scientists think. Um, they are not the most trusted people in the room. I had a really good friend of mine who's a, an Anglican um, a priest, and he shared with me once, he said, you know, nobody's ever converted by a pie chart. And the most trusted person in the room is often not you, um, with all due respect to me. And, and, and he said, you know, if we, we need to be having preachers from the pulpits talking about why saving the earth matters. We need to have our political leaders talking about it, our community leaders talking about it. Um, so I think just recognizing the role that we all have to play. And to Sylvia's point, you know, find your superpower. Use your superpower. If you're an artist, create art that gets people involved. If you're a musician, write music that gets people involved. If you're a scientist, do science that gets, you know, that solves and tackles some of these critical challenges. I think, um, you know, the, all of those things are using your natural strengths um, and being part of the solution and talking about it. The other thing this friend of mine told me was he said, the conservation movement is so doom and gloom. You guys cannot inspire people when you're depressing them away from acting. And he said, the churches celebrate. We know how to have a good time, you know? He said, celebrate your successes. Share your successes. So I just think that's another thing to keep in mind is when we have whales coming back and sea turtle populations increasing and coral reefs recovering, which they do, tell those stories. Share those with your communities. And I think that then inspires action for people to continue to have hope and then continue to make things better. Tierra, I first learned about your work via social media. <laughs> you know that's you were viral on TikTok and YouTube and all of the other platforms <laughs> that we cringe. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you, people learn a lot from those platforms. Mm -hmm. How do we expand the table to get more people in, unlikely allies mm -hmm. who may not identify in this way, but certainly can help us to move the movement forward? Yeah, I really think it's about meeting people where they are and like not saying like, oh, you have to be in this institution, you have to be in the academy or whatever. And I've often said it's like marine science and ocean sciences need like a new um, PR manager who I have become. Um, because I think growing up and even hearing about marine science, like, oh, that's lame, that's nerdy thing, you don't do that. And I'm like, oh, 
marine science is lit. Like, this is so much fun. I'm a scuba diver. I get paid to work on a beach. Like, how, how exciting is that? You know, so I think just really breaking it down to having this, this ocean space as something that is attainable. It's not something like, oh, rich people will take their kids on vacation and like, that's just all you do. It's like, no, you can work in this space and you can be involved in this conversation. So using things like social media and breaking down like different ocean science topics and making it very accessible. But then also, you know, adding things like putting American Sign Language onto all of our content so we can include our deaf colleagues and our friends because they need the same access. So really being intentional about what we're talking about, when we're talking about it. Every time I'm talking about marine science, I'm like, oh, I'm excited, it's the best thing ever because I do want to see more people in this space because ultimately we need more scientists, um, but we also need just more people who are excited about the ocean, who aren't afraid, you know, who can dismantle this, this perception of like, I don't swim, you know, like we jump in the ocean and we're seen as people who belong in this space. Um, but then similar to what Camille said is that you don't have to be a scientist. In black marine science, we have so many different members that are photographers or videographers or do things like summer camps with kids or teach a marine science class in their K through 12 um, school. So there's so many ways that you can be involved in the conversation and then just share it. You know, we have a lot of content now on our YouTube and all the things. You can just share those and then somebody sees it and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know about this. I didn't know what ocean acidification was. Now you have this person like me who's like breaking it down. This is what it is. Da, da, da. And then people are seeing like, oh, okay, I have an understanding now and I can share this with other folks. And I think by putting things on social media, it just makes it a bit easier. Like so easy to retweet now or like or share. And then that ultimately gets to so many other people. So I would just say thinking about the ways that we're communicating science and talking about it has been really important. Because I like to say my grandma, as much as she loves me, she's not reading my white papers, but she is on TikTok <laughs> right there looking at videos. So I found a way to, you know, engage different, different types of folks. Dr. Tierra Moore is founder and CEO of Black and Marine Science and the Black and Marine Science Program Lead at the Nature Conservancy. Dr. Sylvia Earle, explorer and residence at the National Geographic Society. Dr. Camille Gaines is assistant teaching professor of biology at Penn State Brandywine. Dr. Lizzie McLeod is global reef systems lead at the Nature Conservancy. I spoke with them at a live panel discussion for the Nature Conservancy in Connecticut's annual Nature Talk series. It took place before a live audience at Grace Farms in New Canaan. Many thanks to the Grace Farms staff. This episode was part of Connecticut Public's Naughty Week. You can hear more nautical-themed stories by visiting us online at ctpublic.org slash N-A-U-T-I-W-E-E-K. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. Special thanks to our interns Melody Rivera, Elizabeth Van Arnum, Carol Chin, and Stacey Addo. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Keep exploring.